This Lord's Day, we come to continue our study of the God of all comforts. God comforts His people primarily by forgiving our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, and reconciling us to Himself. Judgment is taken away and everlasting life is promised. In Jesus' ministry, He constantly showed compassion to the sick and the lame and the blind. He even raised dead people from the grave. But all that was a portrait, a depiction of Christ's determination to take away the sin of His people, to heal us spiritually, to make possible our ultimate physical resurrection and perfection in glory, that we might be justified by the righteousness and bloodshedding of Christ. Far more important than Jesus bearing the sickness of helpless people during His ministry was His taking away our sin by His dying in our place and for our crimes. One of the greatest metaphors God uses to comfort His people is that of the shepherd and his sheep. In Psalm 23, not only does the shepherd protect and sustain his sheep in physical matters, but far more importantly, He comforts them in danger, in death, and brings them to joy and everlasting life with Him. The reason there are many metaphors used by God to describe His relationship with His people is that no single metaphor is adequate to picture His marvelous dealings with us. In Ezekiel 34, God denounces the false prophets who harm His sheep rather than heal them. In all this, the reference is not principally to physical matters, but rather to the wandering away of God's people from safety into sin and danger. God has little to say about His sheep's delinquencies when using this metaphor, going astray, wandering off, not trusting in Him and helpless without a good shepherd. These are the spiritual failures of the Lord's people that are implicit in the whole sheep-shepherd metaphor. In God's use of this metaphor, we see expressed a kindness, a compassion by God for poor lost sinners. Rather than using harsh language to denounce the sheep, God reserves His anger for the false shepherds who did not guide and guard the sheep from following after their sinful desires and their fears. And then God promises to bring us back to the good shepherd with the kindest and gentlest of words. In the end, God lets us know that His sheep are men and He is our God. To be sure, there are many other metaphors, kings and subjects, in which there is punishment for disobedience and laziness. There's the image of fathers and their sons, in which there is chastisement for sin and laziness. There's the elder brother protecting and sustaining his younger brethren. There is the kinsman redeemer rescuing his kinfolk from oppression and poverty, and slavery, and debt. Sometimes even in the shepherd-sheep metaphor, God describes our faults, our disobedience, but always in the context of forgiveness and pardon for our sins. Isaiah 40 calls for comfort for God's people because He has pardoned our sins, and judgment is done with. But then when the kingdom is brought in and God rescues His people, He again employs the gentle and comforting metaphor of the shepherd protecting the sheep. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
Here in Isaiah 40 is the conjoining of God's pardoning of our sins with God's provision and comfort for His flock, for His sheep. In Jeremiah 23, God juxtaposes the same metaphor with salvation and imputed righteousness. First, God denounces the wicked shepherds who have scattered and driven away His flock and promises they will be judged for it. But then God states that He Himself is the one that drove His sheep away. Here is another example found all through Scripture where God makes it clear that He uses the actions of wicked men to accomplish His purposes and then punishes those wicked men for their evil acts which they did because they wanted to. God makes it clear He will set up His shepherds who will protect and tend His sheep so that they are no longer fearful or dismayed or wander. Then God promises Messiah will come and He will reign and prosper and rule with justice. This will result in God's people being saved and made to dwell in safety. But how can that be? God's people will be saved because of the name of Messiah, the Lord, our righteousness. God used the wicked shepherds to drive away His sheep because of their own sin, but then God gave them a good shepherd, Messiah, who will save His poor sinful flock by becoming their righteousness. The Lord's people in their sin could never be saved by a king who rules in righteousness. Rather, we would all be consumed by such a king's justice. But when that same king, that shepherd, is made our righteousness by sweet imputation, we are thereby saved and redeemed by our king, by our shepherd. Jesus himself embraced this shepherd-sheep metaphor in his own teachings. Jesus was moved with compassion for the people because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. Christ was not referring to their physical ailments, but rather to their spiritual lostness from God. When the wicked religious rulers condemned Jesus for consorting with tax collectors and sinners, Christ invokes the care of the shepherd, finding his lost sheep. Christ describes His rejoicing when the lost sheep is found and brought back to the fold, and the rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. Jesus underscores this image of the sheep going astray and being rescued by the shepherd as the rescue of a sinner from his sin. Even though the sheep are in the wrong and are in fact great sinners, yet Jesus speaks of them in a kindly manner and uses this comfortable metaphor. The wicked leaders demanded that Jesus denounce poor sinners, but instead Jesus embraced them as those who need salvation from their sin. Even in the symbolism Christ uses, there is comfort for poor sinners. They cannot and will not save themselves, but Christ will surely save them as a good shepherd saves His sheep that are lost. Now this comfort by Jesus for us, is extended in a startling way, of course, in the well-known text, John's Gospel, the 10th chapter. You remember, Jesus said, among other things, He that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, the sheep hear his voice. He calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. 
I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, this idea that the shepherd will lay down his life to save his sheep is uh, over and beyond the normal duties of a human shepherd, isn't it? After all, everyone agrees that the shepherd's life is more valuable than the sheep. Yet here the Lord Jesus extends the metaphor to say that as the good shepherd, He will lay down His life for His sheep, that they might be saved, that they might be rescued, that they might none of them be destroyed, but that He would bring life to them more abundantly. And notice also that the sheep hear His voice and follow Him because they're His sheep. and They won't hear the voice of a stranger. And this startling embracing of the metaphor along with Christ embracing the death that He will die to save His sheep. You see, one-ups any other use of this metaphor in olden times. It puts such a severe obligation upon the man that has been appointed the shepherd, that is, the Lord Jesus Himself appointed by His Father to be that shepherd that would save His people. That long ago promised shepherd. How can it be that such a one should lay down his life for his sheep? It's so strange compared to the way we see people rule over their subjects. You know, well, The leader doesn't die to save his people. The people die to save their leader. Of course, we all cough and say, no, 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 they die to save their country. That's the illusion that almost everyone wants to live these days. But Jesus dies to save His sheep. And then the question is, how does Jesus get His sheep? Well, if you read the Old Testament, we already know, don't we? They're assigned to Him by God His Father. They're assigned to Messiah by God. He's appointed, He's anointed to be that shepherd, that replaces and overthrows all the false and failed shepherds that went before. But Jesus says in John 10 how He gets His sheep. He says, you do not believe because you are not of My sheep as I said unto you. Notice the inversion there. It's not that He's not their shepherd and they're not His sheep because they don't believe. No, Jesus says they don't believe because they're not His sheep. They're not His sheep, therefore they don't believe in Him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father 
are one. You see, Christ in His humanity as the Good Shepherd is at one with God Himself over this mechanism of saving His people. This metaphor applying the shepherd to the salvation of the Lord's flock. The ones who the Father has given to Christ to be His sheep, they will hear His voice. They will trust in Him. And the fact that these wicked people who Christ is arguing with don't believe in Jesus is because it's a manifestation of the fact that they've not been given to Him as the Lord Jesus' sheep by His Father. But those who are given to Christ will hear His voice, will follow after Him, will be subject to Him, and will never be lost, and will be brought unto everlasting life. And the means by which is that the Lord Jesus as the shepherd will lay down His life for His sheep. In the shepherd-sheep metaphor, the sheep have no say, do they? They are assigned to the shepherd. They don't get to go and check out all the shepherds and say, I I think I'll pick this shepherd to be my shepherd. I don't like that guy. He's too loud or too short. I don't think he could do a good job. No, the sheep are assigned to the shepherd. The shepherd either owns them or is appointed by the owner of the sheep to be their shepherd. They're assigned to the shepherd. God takes His people as His sheep because He loves them. They will follow the shepherd because of his kindness to them and because God has assigned them to the Lord Jesus to be their shepherd. But the goodness of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is that he sacrifices his life to save us. He gives us everlasting life. His sheep will never perish. He can never lose a one of them. Now, all of this is said by Christ not only to articulate His purpose and His knowledge and His understanding, which is perfect, of the Father's will, and to promise to make a sacrifice of Himself at the proper time to save His sheep, but also for our benefit so that we might be comforted that not only are we the sheep of His pasture, but there's a commitment between the shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and God the Father who gave us to the Lord Jesus that He will not lose a single one of the Father's sheep that He's given to Him. That He'll go so far as to die to save His sheep from their sin. So here is the love of God towards us expressed so comfortably and so gently once again in this metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd. But there is a pathos in this metaphor, and that is the death of the shepherd to save his sheep. This is something that jumps out of the normal storyline, doesn't it? It's not what you expect, but the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, when God uses it, when He applies it to His people whom He will save, it has to be more extraordinary than just some humdrum point-by-point routine identity between the parts in the metaphor and the parts of reality. You remember uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed, He told His disciples in Mark 14 at verse 27, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of Me this night. 
For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. We've spoken on this text many times. But notice again who it is that strikes the shepherd. It's God Himself that smites the shepherd. I will smite the shepherd, God says through the prophet Zechariah. I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. You remember in Zechariah, the text says, Awake, O sword, against the shepherd, and against my man. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. So it is the sword of God's justice, the sword of God's wrath that strikes the shepherd that strikes the Lord Jesus. And this, of course, is consistent with the fact that Christ was put to death at the hands of wicked men, but for the purpose of the wrath of God falling upon Him as a sacrifice in the place of His people. It is God Himself that strikes the shepherd for our saving. And sure, He has used wicked men as His instruments, but nevertheless, it is God who struck the Lord Jesus, when He went to the cross to die in our place. And nowhere is this more poignantly expressed, this pathos of the shepherd and the sheep. Nowhere is it more poignantly expressed than Isaiah 53 in two verses. We know Isaiah 53 is mostly concerned with the substitution of the Lord Jesus in death for the sins of His people which are laid upon Him Our sins are laid on Jesus and He's punished for them by God. It pleased God to crush Him. He hath put Him to grief. He hath made His soul an offering for sin. Thereby shall He justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. We are declared, we who've trusted in Jesus, are declared to be completely without fault, innocent, acquitted, no charges laid against us. Why? Because all of that was exhausted when the charges, when the crimes that we committed were laid on Jesus, when He bore our sins. But look at Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. Here again, the Lord invokes this metaphor of the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Messiah the iniquity of us all. So you see here, our sins, our iniquities, our crimes against God are likened unto what happens when sheep go astray, when they turn after their own way. You see, they rebel against the shepherd. They say, I don't need to follow this guy. And I want to strike it out on my own. I want to see what's over that hill or down those rocks or under that cliff in those brambles. Let me go. And they go. They're stupid. They don't have very much foresight. They aren't very clever, are they? They may think they are. And this is the way the Lord describes poor sinful people that He loves. Their sin... They're going against God. Their rebellion is compared to sheep going astray, to them turning everyone to His own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. 
And then it goes to describe the Lord Jesus. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So He openeth not His mouth. And here we see the subdued description of our sins described in terms of the faults and foolishnesses of sheep. And our God's comfort of His people extends even to the use of this gentle, kindly metaphor to express our lostness, to express our crimes against our God, our own faults that have doomed us to destruction by the hand of God's justice. You see how comforting, how gentle is this metaphor that the Lord uses to describe His lost sinful people whom He intends and certainly will rescue by means of the Good Shepherd, by means of the death of the Good Shepherd. Our God in pity for us likens our sins as the delinquencies of poor, helpless, and stupid sheep. What the Lord lays on Jesus, our Savior, all our transgressions, and punishes Him in our place. This brings us to an interesting dispute that some people have about Christ's incarnation. People who don't believe in or don't like the teaching of Scripture found in Romans 5 and in other places of original sin, of all of mankind falling in sin in Adam, who is our representative, our federal head, of all people being born guilty of Adam's sin and thereby condemned already. People don't like that teaching. They want to believe that every person is born perfect and sinless and innocent just like Adam was. But then they have the struggle to explain then why do babies lie so soon after they're born with nobody teaching them how to lie. Where does that come from? How does sin well up in every person and become overt the longer they live, no matter what kind of examples been lived before them? Where does that sinful nature come from? Well, it comes from Adam. It comes from our being born in Adam, represented by Adam. And so these people don't like that teaching. So in order to tear it down, rather than really explain what Paul is saying in Romans 5, false teachers would say that men have no fallen sin nature, that there is no original sin, that people are not guilty. They're not guilty until they sin themselves in their own proper persons, their argument is to flip the narrative and say that this must be true because otherwise then Jesus would have been born in sin and Jesus would have a sin nature and Jesus would be guilty from His mother's womb. And so then where does your perfect sacrifice go? You see how they operate. They use the incarnation as a weapon to wield against what the Scriptures teach about the lost, fallen nature of all mankind in Adam. So if you look at Romans chapter 5 at verse 12, you could teach uh, months on this. But it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, 
And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now they really start to squirm when you say, well, it says that the reason all men die is because all have sinned. Well, then why do babies die? Well, Paul says because all men have sinned. Well, how'd that happen? Well, we sinned in Adam. We're liable for Adam's sin. He was our representative. And the whole point of the text is just like Adam was our representative and brought death and destruction and condemnation to us by his one sin, which we then augment in each of our lives by our own original sins that we commit. Even so, by the righteousness of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are in Him are made righteous. And this is the meaning of grace. That He becomes our new federal head, our new representative before God. His righteousness stands in the place of us, not our own. We have none. And all who are in Christ by faith are covered by His obedience and blood shedding. And grace and eternal life is given to us even though we've not in ourselves been righteous and obedient. Christ has. So you see that the teaching of Paul in Romans 5 is very important. But it says, does it not, that death passed upon all men because all have sinned. So if someone dies that's in Adam, you can be sure that they died because they have sinned. Does that mean they've sinned in their own mind and knowledge? No, it doesn't. It means that they're held liable for the sin of Adam, their federal head. But these people don't like that doctrine. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. And so they go to Hebrews chapter 2 and they try to argue that Hebrews says that Christ is made like us in every respect which it doesn't really say. But what it does say is He was made like us so that He might suffer death. That's the critical way in which Christ is made like us. He's incarnate in human flesh. He's made like unto His brethren. He's related to us physically in a certain way through Mary. But of course, He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. And so He's not in Adam. And if you understand these teachings, you'll understand that Jesus would not have died had He not taken our sins upon Him. He was not like other people in the sense that, that He's doomed to die because He's in Adam. He's not in Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the perfect man who has come to displace Adam as our representative, all who've trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so... It says we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Behooved Him to be made captain of our salvation, to be made perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one for which cause He's not ashamed to call us brethren. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the Scriptures teach that Christ is incarnate in human flesh. He is a 
a true and perfect man. He is therefore a brother to all of His people who call upon Him. And it was for the principal purpose that He might have a body in which our sins could be judged as our substitute and in our place. But there was no sin in Jesus like there is and was in all of us. He was not born in Adam. Adam does not represent Jesus before God. He is the second Adam. He is born of the Holy Ghost. But He is flesh and blood just like us. He is a human mind and heart. He has natural desires, but He's perfectly obedient to His Father. But then, there is this astounding, final astounding truth in the metaphor that shows us the critical way in which Jesus is like us. We see Him in His humanity, born of a woman, flesh and blood, kin to us, a near kinsman, so that He might be our Redeemer. But He's one in whom there was no sin. There was no taint of Adam's guilt. He was not naturally subject to death. Now people will quibble, well, could He have got sick? Could He have sinned if He had wanted to? Well, those aren't the important things. It's necessary our Redeemer be made like the ones He will die to save. Isaiah points out this truth that in some way our Good Shepherd is made like His own sheep. Not that Jesus ever went astray like a sheep. Not that He ever turned to His own way like we did, like a sheep. Not that He was foolish like a sheep, like we are. Not that He was driven by fear like we are, like sheep. Not that He was ever stubborn like a sheep against the commandments of God. Not that Jesus was ever helpless like a sheep, like we are. What does Isaiah say? It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. The Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought, mark the words, like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before her shearers is done. This is what Isaiah laments, that our shepherd, our Redeemer, the one who died in our place, He died like a sheep. He died like a sheep. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought like a lamb to the slaughter. And so we have here in Isaiah 53 two different types of sheep, yet both sheep. Poor sinners who stray and go their own way like sheep. The disobedient sheep who have gone astray. And then there's the obedient lamb who died for those lost sheep. Do you see how Isaiah 53 portrays the critical way in which the Lord Jesus is made like unto His own sheep? That is that Jesus died like a sheep does. 
No wonder John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So there is in this comfortable metaphor a haunting and startling similarity, likeness between the Lord's people who are His sheep and the Good Shepherd who is God's Lamb. He died like a sheep even though He had never gone astray like a sheep, never turned to His own way like a sheep, never run in fear like a sheep, never been stubborn and foolish like a sheep, but He died like a sheep in the place of His own sheep. Do you see the comfort of Christ for His lost people in His embracing the role as shepherd of the lost sheep? It reminds us of what the Apostle Peter wrote, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so around the Lord's table, we celebrate the crucial and essential way in which the Lord Jesus is made like His brethren, His sheep. He was God's Lamb to be slain to take away our sin. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table with this bread and with this wine. We celebrate the fulfillment, the culmination of the promise of the sheep-shepherd metaphor. That our shepherd so intimately related to His people, His sheep, that He became like us in that regard, that He could die like a sheep for His people so that we might be raised unto everlasting life. You know, sheep in this world never have everlasting life, do they? They're born, they grow old, they wander They trip and fall in holes and break their legs. They get eaten by wolves. But sooner or later, they die, don't they? If if of nothing else than old age. But the Lord Jesus is the only sheep that is a man who died so that his other sheep, the ones that he would save, would have everlasting life and never perish. And no one would be able to pluck them out of his hand. Praise God, God's Lamb who was slain for us, is raised in power and glory. And if you go through the book of Revelation, you will see how often Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, even around the throne of heaven in Revelation chapter 5. We behold the glories of the Lamb amidst the Father's throne. Thou art worthy to receive power and riches and honor and strength and glory and blessing, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Praise God. Around this table, the bread shows us, points us to the body of Christ that was broken for us, that was torn asunder and slain on the cross. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures that truth for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You provided us a lamb to be slain in our place and for our crimes and that He identified Himself with His poor lost sheep. 
when he died like a sheep on the cross as our sacrifice. And we thank you that he left us this emblem, this bread, to picture his body that's broken and also to picture the fact that all our hope in life rests in our partaking spiritually of the body and blood of Christ, that his body and his blood are the very life and hope and health and joy of the Lord's people, that this pictures the means by which he has purchased our salvation and assured our everlasting joy in heaven forever one day. And Lord, we thank you that he left us this feast and allows us to gather around this table united in our recollection and worship and praise for what he did when he was made your lamb and was slain in our place and for our crimes at the cross. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 38 in the Black Book. Isaac Watts hymn, Behold the glories of the Lamb. Amidst the Father's throne, prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. Number 38.